Good morning to everyone. It's so wonderful to see the faces that are here, especially many that I haven't been able to see in the flesh for a long time. Um, and as well, good morning to you who are, are watching uh, through the live stream. It's wonderful to see you. Please make sure you keep the Bibles open. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter together. Um, but as important is that we actually ask God to be with us as we look at that word. And so I'm going to pray for us. So please bow your heads. Our loving Father, as we come to this passage this morning, uh, Father, please feed and strengthen our faith. Um, remind us afresh, both in mind and in heart, of the living hope that you have called us to in Jesus Christ, that we might live for him and please you in every way. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this metaphor for life. And it's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's an image that's quite easy, I think, to visualise. Uh, you can picture like a, a broad six-lane highway loaded with vehicles uh, that leads off to, you know, um, uh, and beside it, while that's all going off in one direction, you can sort of see, picture hills beside it. And on that hill, there is this kind of small wooden gate and behind that a winding path that's, that's going through that no one seems to really be walking on or only a few people here and there while everyone is speeding off in the distance along the highway. It's, it's, a, it's an easy thing to visualise. But it's not just the image that is easy to visualise. The reality that Jesus is describing there is not hard to access either, I think. That narrow gate is one man wide. The road to life is found only through Jesus Christ himself and the Christian life is not necessarily an easy one. Now, we're regularly reminded day after day as we, as we, that we travel off in a different direction to the way, well, it seems like the most, most of the world and most of our society are travelling in. And so things where much of our society sees just normality, we recognise before us a battleground. As we're confronted with the impediment of our sin that keeps tripping us up, as we experience the ridicule and hostility of the world around us for believing a saviour that we can't see, all the while being constantly enticed off the path by temporary distractions and the, and the promise of immediate gratification while we're travelling a winding track, trusting a way that's been marked out for us by the promises of a God that we can't see. See, the views from the narrow road are not always pretty. And so you might ask, why on earth, why on earth would you walk that path? Why would you do it? You know, one of my Christian friends went to Tanzania as a missionary and, and a few years after he got home, his wife died suddenly and shortly after the funeral, in a matter of days after the funeral, his house burned down and it destroyed every tangible memory 
to testify to their life together. Two of his children eventually abandoned Christ. But he still trusts and loves and lives for Jesus. Why? Or another friend who, with her husband, went into ministry about 30 years ago and through that period of time has continually battled illness and surgery after surgery has spent probably more days in bed than out of it while trying to raise children and help her husband pastor a church and yet she still loves and trusts and lives for Jesus. Why on earth? Or another friend whose life was a mess of alcoholism until he found Jesus. But then his wife, who was quite happy to put up with the drinking, wasn't prepared to put up with his new faith and left him and took the kids. And he still loves and trusts Jesus. Or the person whose own brain and the chemicals in their own brain is continually dragging them to dark places and heightening their anxiety and instead of cursing God, leans upon him. Why? Or the Christian business person who's getting taken advantage of and sees opportunities that they've worked tirelessly for taken away from them because they held on to their integrity and they refused to respond to evil with evil or engage in unethical or duplicitous behaviour and yet they would do it all again because they followed Jesus. Why? And what about you? If you're a Christian, why are you still on the narrow road? And if you're not yet a Christian, why would you ever go through the gate and begin the journey? Well, I'll tell you why. Because although sometimes the view from the narrow road can get dominated by the thorny bushes that often close in on it, it's the glorious view when you look ahead and you see where that road leads that lifts your heart and that strengthens your knees. Because that narrow road is your journey home. Friends, today, as we begin our series in 1 Peter, we're going to be reminded wonderfully about just how good it is to be a Christian and why the journey is well and truly worth it. And Peter does this from the very beginning of his letter, even the introduction. Now, the introduction tells us who wrote the letter and, and who they were writing the letter to. Um, but even here, you'll notice that the scene is being set for Peter's big message. Um, first of all, let's consider your author. Verse 1 tells us that it's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when we're talking about Peter, we're talking about the Peter, the Peter, the most prominent of all of Jesus' disciples during his ministry. Now, you could comfortably preach a whole, whole series on the life of Peter himself. So what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll limit what I say now to the fact that we're talking about somebody who has credibility of the I-know-what-I'm-talking-about kind. Being an apostle of Jesus meant that Peter was commissioned by Jesus himself for this ministry. And Peter knew Jesus. He knew Jesus really, really well. He knew what Jesus did. 
He knew what Jesus said very, very well. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, he was the very first one to enter the tomb on Easter Day after Mary Magdalene had pointed out that it was empty. He was the one who got up and had the guts to get up in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem just over a month after those very same people had nailed Jesus to a cross and told them that they killed God's Messiah, that God's now raised him from the dead and that they need to repent and believe in him. It's that Peter. And, and this Peter knows the narrowness of the road. He himself had been beaten and imprisoned and threatened with death for testifying about the resurrection. And he doesn't just know it about in terms of hardship, he knows it in terms of the other bit about walking that narrow road is wrestling with our own failings. Because Peter made some pretty bad calls too. More than once he'd crumbled under social pressure and, and had brought home to him in no uncertain terms that he needed to repent. He knew the glory of Jesus, but he also knew what it was to face hardship and trials and testings as a Christian. And who did he write to? Well, to a whole series of churches, we're told, spread through the Roman provinces of what is now modern-day Turkey. Churches that would have been made up of Christians from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. But I want you to see, in your Bibles, how he identifies them. Because he doesn't identify them as being from those provinces but has scattered throughout them. And that is a significant difference. Now, it, it is likely that the majority of, of the people in these churches had actually lived in those places for most of their lives, if not all of them, and maybe some of them and their families have been there for generations. But Peter addresses them as exiles there. Uh, the, the word in the original language is descriptive of people who are temporary residences of a place, not permanent residents of that place. He's identifying them as people who live in those regions but don't belong there. He's writing to people that are on the narrow road. And where do they belong instead? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 again. They're strangers where they live because they're God's elect. They're God's people. They've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and for a very serious purpose, to be obedient to Jesus, the Christ, and set apart as holy to God by the blood that Jesus shed for them. In a nutshell, Peter is saying, he's writing to people that aren't Bithynians anymore and they're not Cappadocians anymore and they're not Galatians anymore or anything else. You're not that now that you know Jesus. You are God's people, that's who you are. He has set you apart by His Holy Spirit and with His Son as your Saviour and Lord. Wherever you might happen to live, wherever you might happen to live, wherever you might happen to live, that is not your permanent home. You belong to Him and for Him and with Him. And so I want you to notice this because this is foundational to the letter of 1 Peter. Peter's whole argument is going to be centred on reminding people about their Christian identity. It's an identity letter. From the very beginning, he's reminding his readers who they now actually are in Christ. 
Their identity has been profoundly changed from what it used to be. And he's going to go on and show them what that identity means now as they live their lives in this world. And the place that he begins with is, is beautiful. It's the wonderful joy that every single Christian can know right now, even as we're walking that narrow road. And he's going to give us three reasons for rejoice. Have a look at verses 3 to 12. That the first reason for joy is that the new life that he has given to us is one that is full of hope. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, hope is a word that we can throw around quite easily, can't we? We can use it for small and transitory things. I hope my team wins. I hope to score a goal. I hope to get a raise. Sometimes the things we use it of actually do have great substance, but are uncertain. I hope I get better. I hope to see that person again. I hope they find a vaccine. Well, I trust you noticed the Christian hope, the hope that Peter is speaking of here, is neither small nor transitory or uncertain. And did you see why? First, because that hope is something that God has given us out of his great mercy. God is the one that gives this hope to us. Think about what that means. In other words, it's not a hope that's been given to you by a lottery company or by a well-intentioned boss, or even by a highly knowledgeable medical specialist. This hope is given to you by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose power made the world and sustains every single part of that world, the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful and whose word never falls to the ground empty without accomplishing the purposes for which he spoke it. And he is the one that says, I have this hope that I want to give to you. And why give that hope to us? Well, did you see there? It's, it, it's not contingent on my worthiness. You're awesome. And, and if you keep this up, well, I've got this wonderful reward that I might give you. No, quite the opposite, in fact. It's given by the God who knows I actually don't deserve it. He knows that. And he knows that I won't deserve it. And yet he gives it to us anyway. It's, it's a God who is resolved to give it. It's out of his great mercy. The one who has all and knows that we have nothing is the one that's chosen to give us and you know, if you're a Christian right now who is particularly feeling the weight of your own weakness and your own failings, that's pretty good to know, isn't it? It's really good to know. Second, this hope is sure because it's bound to who he has made us, right? It comes with our very identity as Christians. I want you to think about William and Kate's son, George, right? I'm talking about Prince George here, cute little 
thing that he is. He's born into the royal family. You've, you've seen pictures of him from the very beginning, the ones that have been released to us anyway. He's born into fame. He's born into wealth. He's born into privilege, born into responsibility. He's born one day to be king. Just, it's just who he is. He got born into it. Well, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us new birth into a living hope. We're born into hope. God has mercifully granted us a new life. And the context of that life, throughout that life, is hope. It won't pass. It's a living hope. And we're born into it. And what was the means by which God gave us this new birth into the living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, our hope is based in the unchanging reality of what has happened in history. The empty tomb outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem and a risen saviour. A risen saviour that Peter himself saw with his own eyes, touched with his own hands, ate food with. Christian hope can no more die than Jesus be unraised. And this living hope that we're born into cannot be compared to any of the other hopes that might excite our hearts. Can you think of what those hopes might be for you at the moment? Hopes like holidays and houses and health and happy times. Look at verse 4. We've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Our bodies, our houses, our things all break, but not our inheritance. So many things that we esteem or that we enjoy get ruined and corrupted by sin, by sand, by bugs, by bacteria, not our inheritance. And whether it's from time, familiarity, memory, Everything loses its luster eventually, not our inheritance. And look why. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Nothing and no one can get to it. Because in the vault of vaults, it is not of this world. It is not subject to this world's brokenness and evil. God has secured it for us with him. And he hasn't just secured a future for us. He's secured us for the future. Have a look at the next bit, verse 5. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you grasp what that's saying? Look, if you want to picture it, it's kind of like this. The God who saw you and he saw you in all of your brokenness and sin has chosen because he's merciful to pour that mercy out upon you. And he's given you this new life in Jesus 
one that by its very nature is full of hope, hope that's never going to die and can be drawn upon day after day after day because Christ is risen and that's just happened. And that same merciful God has, has promised you a glorious future that unlike every other hope in this life, no one can take away, no moth can destroy it, no thief can steal it. And now here he is, that same God who's done all of that for you, even as you trust him, is standing there holding a shield before you, standing as your guardian. Now, standing as your protector, a mighty fortress, using his infinite power to preserve you every day of your life until finally he reveals to all the world the magnificent salvation that even now stands ready for you. That, by the way, is biblical faith. He holds the shield. We just stand safe behind it and trust him. It's all of God. If you follow Jesus, then that is the life, the living hope that you and I and as our, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world and through the ages of every financial background, every racial background, everywhere have been born into and it can't be taken away. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the joy of that, I take it, is evident. I hope, I hope you're feeling it. I'm trying to make you feel it, but God will do that. It's his scripture. Feed upon that, meditate upon it. But what Peter does now is he extends that joy into a critically important new context. This joy needs to shape our understanding of life as we walk along the narrow road. For all of that is no less true in times of hardship than it is in times of ease. It's always true. In fact, it is one of the particular joys that a Christian and only a Christian has, that we can truly rejoice even and maybe even especially through trials. It's what makes a joy, that joy a far more profound concept than just mere happiness. Look at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now remember, Peter is not unfamiliar with the trials, temptations and persecutions that the Christian life can produce. And he understands that can, there can be real grief that goes along with these sufferings. The word grief can also be translated as pain. Right? So he gets it. So Peter is not some kind of one of these odious power of positive thinking preachers speaking from the comfort of his easy life, saying, hey, always look on the bright side. But, but I think we do need to see the tone here and hear it. Look at, listen, look at that. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer. Literally, this reads, though now, for a little while, if it is necessary, 
for you to grieve in many trials, many coloured trials. You see, you see the tension? Can you, can you pick it up in that sentence? It's like on one end, he's really wanting to acknowledge the real hardship and pain of their sufferings and trials. And yet, at the same time, he's, he's striving hard to make sure that his readers don't feel overwhelmed by them and make those trials overwhelming. Do, do you feel that tension there? As great as our life trials can be, they must be seen by the Christian in head and in heart, in true perspective. They might be big. They often are. They might be manifold and constant but there is something yet bigger, just like we heard in the family talk. Something more powerful at play here. Look at what the Apostle of Jesus Christ teaches us about our painful trials. Verse 7, these have come so that... There is there's a reason here. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. He wants these suffering believers to know that even their pain has a glorious God-ordained purpose. And the comparison he uses is that is the refining of gold. Um, gold gets purer and purer and purer in the heat of the crucible. But gold will eventually perish. Well, faith too is proven genuine and strengthened and refined in the heat of testing and trial. But I want you to remember the image that we've just looked at. It's through faith that we are shielded by God's power as we await the full realisation of our salvation. Faith is keeping your heart fixed on the one holding that shield. And the harder our experience, the greater our gratitude as we watch that shield hold. Faith is a treasure and after every testing, it gets more valuable and more beautiful. It is infinitely more precious than gold. It is more valuable than our comfort. And the proving of it is worth the price of our pain. For when Christ returns and we still are found safe and firm in his grace, living testimonies to the power and goodness of God, experienced in a thousand different ways through a thousand different trials over a lifetime, the result will be praise and glory and honour as our living hope is revealed to everyone and everything. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's why we can rejoice even in our trials. Because we know who belong to God, 
that there is actually a great purpose behind them and a great God behind that purpose. Through faith, God is not shielding us from suffering. He's shielding us for salvation. And every day and through every trial as we trust Him, that salvation is drawing closer and closer and closer until the time when faith will have received its goal and no longer be faith at all because it's going to be sight. And you know this will happen because Christ, the foundation of your hope, has gone before you already. He's already walked the path. He's suffered first and He is risen and He is glorified. And if you think that's glorious... You're not the only ones. Brothers and sisters, we who are in Christ are the envy of the prophets and even the angels. Look at verse 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. That God would save in this way by the suffering of his Christ and his being raised to glory was something that the Old Testament points to. to. It was all done in fulfilment of the scriptures. Oh, but the, but the prophets who wrote that didn't know when and, and they didn't know precisely how. Their hearts longed to know their minds wrestled with how on earth this could be. But they had to be content with the knowledge that they were serving future generations who would actually get to see what they are battling in their minds to comprehend. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I want you to think about who it is who first told you about Jesus. When did you first realise who Jesus truly was and what he'd done for you? Do, you? do you remember that time? Maybe the period of time, the sorts of faces, the people, the messages? Maybe it was a scripture lesson or a conversation with a work friend? Maybe it was what you grew up hearing and you realise it's just always been something that has spoken to you throughout your life and that you've accepted. Maybe it was sitting around a table doing a course like Christianity Explored or something else or, or maybe it was a big convention that a friend invited to you and it just blew your world apart. Um, around you, while that was going on for you, for so many of the people around you, life was just going on, Right? They were going on about their daily business, they were having conversations about other things, thinking about what they were going to eat and where and all of that. Maybe they would have been actively sitting beside you, rejecting the same thing that you're hearing and embracing. For most people around you, that great day, that period of time for you was just a normal day. Well, that simple message of salvation in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for you and he rose again, was a message that the great prophets of old longed to know in its fullness, but had to be content with it remaining a precious but elusive outline. Even angels 
the mediators of the old covenant, heavenly witnesses of God's working in the world, are captivated by what God has done for you and me in Christ. So what seemed like just a normal day, the day of your response to the gospel, shared by some normal Christian person, was in truth nothing nothing less than God the Holy Spirit speaking into your life, giving you a new birth into a living hope, setting you apart for Christ and placing you on the narrow but glorious road that leads to life. That's the truth of what that normal day was. You're the joyful envy of prophets and angels. Peter is writing to Christians with real issues, with real hardships, real alienation, but he resolutely calls them and he calls us to a right viewing of things. He insistently calls them to put their suffering in its proper place and encourages them with the astounding reality of the salvation that will last for all of eternity, not for the moment. The good news is really good and it's always been good and it always will be good. Now, the rest of the letter has a lot to say about what this looks like and how we live it out. But these beginning verses call us to praise-filled perspective. Understanding our trials rightly is a Christian discipline. A joyful one, a, a wonderful grace even. But I want to say a discipline, nonetheless. There can be two ready responses that people can have to trials and hardship, especially when that feels relentless. Um, One is to fall into despair and bitterness. To let those experiences crash over us like a wave And as they do to see all of those around us who seem to be standing on islands or having an easier time and resent them for it. Maybe to withdraw into ourselves where everything in our life just becomes about us and our suffering and our experiences. And and the obligation is on everybody else and especially God to make everything right. The other is to harden ourselves in stoic resolve. We stand up against the waves by becoming concrete walls. We just suck it up and get on with things. Such is life. If you can't get out of it, you might as well get on with it. I don't think either of those is what the Bible calls us to. You see, for the Christian who has been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience and dedication to the Son, for the one who has new life and a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, and who's been shielded by the power of the living God, well, bitterness and grumbling cannot be for us. See, there is a blindness there 
to who we truly are and will always be and what God is actually doing for us in the here and now and it can distort our ability to look at the world and at others with love and with fairness. The thing is, salvation is coming and God does care. And neither can stoic resolve be the answer. Because for us, trials aren't just life. We have an active and powerfully loving God who is preparing us, even through those trials, for an eternal future of praise, glory and honour. For us, even in its pain, suffering is actually formative, building and refining faith for a glorious purpose. And so we rejoice and we remember. And when we're caring for others in their suffering, we encourage and we remind that one day the pain will go and only joy and peace will remain. And that day is sure, for Christ is risen. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.